automatic shots fired at 415 ASL. Route 291, sounded like an automatic firearm. Copy, Code Red at 169 Sam Easy, have shots. 169 Sam Easy, it's coming from upstairs in the Mandalay Bay. Upstairs in Mandalay Bay, halfway up. I see the shots coming from Mandalay Bay, halfway up. Control 361 IC, we have uh, multiple 415 hey, breaks. Give me a surge. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the warehouse. How's it going, everyone? My name is Chris Hagan. This is Above the Standard, and today we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Menace. Uh, Dr. Menace is an emergency room physician, and Kevin was on duty during the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. Uh, his hospital was the closest trauma center to the incident, and Kevin shares his story from that night. What uh, not only his mindset, and we talk about where he came from, what kind of got him preparing, almost preparing years in advance for this moment that he had obviously no idea that was coming. And they share how they were um, kind of a, a overwhelmed, but also persevered through heavy adversity during that night. It was so humbling to talk to Kevin. He's an amazing man. And him and the nurses and surgeon that was that were on duty that day, um, saved a ton of lives and it was incredible to hear the heroics that that occurred on that day so please i had a great time talking to him this is a phenomenal story please uh give it up dr kevin menace all right and we're recording um so if you're joining us today uh, on above the standard podcast we're talking with uh dr kevin menace um kevin was the attending physician at Sunrise Hospital on October uh, 2017 when the Las Vegas shooting happened at the um, Country Music Festival. And I first saw Kevin and Troy at an active assailant conference, and he had this, um, you know, really incredible story of a, a, um, a hospital that was um, not really prepared for a mass casualty incident, but him and his staff and, and nurses and other um, members were at the hospital really did an, an amazing job with the influx of people they had. And, and since then, he's had a pretty uh, a pretty positive message or a change of message for mass casualty incidents, especially as it relates to hospitals and how they can prepare for it. So Kevin, I, I certainly appreciate your time that you've lended to us today and um, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. So Kevin, before we kind of jump into that night, um, give us give us a little bit about your background. Uh, I'm an ER doctor who um, graduated from the bottom of his med school class and somehow ended up at uh, a ER residency in Detroit. Um, and while I was in Detroit, uh, I learned uh, a lot from some of those old school ER doctors, you know, some of the guys who had been trained by old school ER doctors and where emergency medicine, you know, essentially started, which was uh, at Detroit receiving. Um, so I, I learned a lot of the lef lessons uh, from those guys on how to handle uh, certain things. I also learned a lot about EMS and just a different way of dealing with um, EMS uh, and um, just the principles that they had uh, had to uh, uh, function in. 
And for those who don't really know, uh, I mean, Detroit is not the wealthiest city. And so those paramedics really have it tough. And um, I watched, uh, you know, my heroes, um, uh, you know, interact with these guys. I, I watched how they, um, how they learn to function with very little um, uh, equipment and resources and somehow bring these people into the ER. And so those were a lot of the things that, uh, that rooted uh, my sort of understanding and my uh, relationship with EMS. Fast forward, uh, you know, after residency, I ended up in Las Vegas and um, I, uh, I worked in the community hospital and uh, uh, for a little bit before I found that there was a really busy emergency department that was just a few blocks from the strip. Um, it was soon after uh, a active shooter or active uh, or a gunman had come into the ER when I was, I think I had just been out for one or two months. And it's sort of that uh, gunman walking into my ER um, uh, helped me. I mean, you, you would think that it would be something that would um, make you fear going to work, but it changed my perspective and um, it ultimately led me to start um, volunteering with the uh, SWAT team as one of their medics, uh, as well as moving over to this uh, hospital that um, was uh, busy, inner city, um, small in footprint, um, huge in, um, in uh, patient capacity and in an environment that most people would label unsafe, but those who stuck around um, loved uh, working in it. And so, it, you know, over the years, it ended up uh, developing into this um, uh, group of individuals that um, I think were really the core of what made us uh, successful that night. And so um, one of the things uh, that I remembered when I first uh, moved over to that hospital was, and it was something that I picked up when I was in Detroit, you know, um, my heroes there always treated the EMS guys with respect. Um, I'm sure you've had to transport patients to hospitals before, and I'd seen it, you know, where, um, you know, someone would act, uh, would uh, second guess your vital signs, you know, any question that they can ask to try to make you sweat when you're just trying to bring the patient in and, uh, and, and drop them off, doing the best that you can, uh, you know, working in the back of the ambulance, low light, um, half functioning equipment. Um, I never would be that doctor who would try to sweat EMS. That was just never my philosophy. Why did that? And, why did that stand out um, to you? Because certainly, I think myself and thousands of other uh, paramedics and EMTs out there can recall going into a hospital and getting questioned by the the attending there, um, and, and and rightfully so, especially a critical patient. But there is that that level of 
that of grandstanding. And I even know when I did my my paramedic clinicals, um, you certainly felt like you were the lowest form of medicine, and you were just in everybody's way. You were you were trying to be trained. You know, it didn't help that we were we were in scrubs. I looked like a vacuum salesman in the middle of the ER. Um, and you do, you have this feeling of just, uh, me, you know, lower than mediocrity, um, amongst like, you know, I don't, you know, this, this knowledge base that you would hope would be, you know, giving you, uh, direction and education. And, and there are some nurses out there that were super helpful to me and, and a couple of doctors, but, um, no, absolutely. You, you definitely have saw this, um, this, this, um, um, exchange and it was uh, definitely uncomfortable. So what 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 about those doctors in Detroit? Um, was it just the the amount of experience those medics they knew were bringing in and the and what they were up against coming into that? No, I think it was um, uh, like for example, my program director, so my boss uh, uh, there, Doctor uh, Don Benson, was a medic in Vietnam who um, then uh, became a nurse uh, and then became an ER doctor. So watching how he interacted with people, having had, you know, and I I never asked him this directly, but I, you know, from example, I mean, people will tell you certain things, um, but it's one other thing to watch how they live by example. And I think the way that he treated other people was a reflection on his upbringing and where he had come from. And I don't think he ever forgot that. And, um, you know, he was my hero. Uh, I mean, he was the guy who took me into residency and gave me a chance when, you know, at that time when I applied for emergency medicine, uh, as a med school graduate at the bottom of my class, um, I shouldn't have been an ER doctor. I and mean, my grades did not allow me to, to be an ER doctor. It was the most competitive specialty the year that I graduated. And so I had a snowflakes chance in hell that of uh, being an ER doctor. And he took me despite all of that. And uh, so I always admired the man and he continued to show me examples of, um, of how to treat people. And, you know, I, piece things together here and there. And again, the way that he would interact with uh, paramedics, what I would notice was by just um, being that one guy who never would sweat a uh, paramedic, he would get the basic information that he needed. And he would always um, sort of thank the medics for bringing the patient in. And that's kind of the uh, the philosophy that I've taken, you know, it's not, Hey, um, did you do this for me? And how come you couldn't get an IV and what was the AccuCheck and what was the AccuCheck before that? And what was the blood pressure before that? That was never my philosophy. My bar was always, Hey, did you bring the patient in live to me? Great. You know, that's, that's awesome. And if you brought him in dead, did you, um, you know, at least bring him in dead quick, then awesome. That was kind of my bar, you know, just bring him in. And uh, so while I was there in uh, in Vegas, I had seen at this hospital that a lot of the medics were pretty gun shy when they would come in because that's kind of how, and you know, I assumed that that's how they were treated. And I took that same approach there as I had done previously. And what I would do was I'd 
ask for the minimal information that I would need. You know, hey, were the vital signs stable or not stable? And I would go to work. And a lot of the times, if they would stick around and ask questions later, I'd take the time to explain what was going on, why we would do what we were doing, and try to really change their, their outlook from, you know, staying and playing to, you know, scoop and run. And, um, and that came from uh, what I learned in Detroit. And in Detroit, um, legend has it that um, at, there was some point at which their um, EMS had gotten so dangerous in the city that most of the uh, um, EMS spots could not be filled by paramedics. And so biker gangs uh, actually ran EMS. And uh, what they would do is they would basically grab these gunshot victims or medical cases, throw them in the back of the ambulance, drive them as fast to the ER as possible, and then they would get worked on. And so because it was known that they didn't really have as much medical um, training, and but they were willing to go into like a hail of gunfire to go and take somebody and bring them in, um, that became the sort of uh, backbone for how EMS was run in Detroit. So if you had a gunshot wound in Detroit, you were in the hospital in three minutes, two minutes, you know, and so what could be done in the back of a rig when you had a, um, you know, an advance driving the rig and, you know, a paramedic in the back just trying to keep this person half alive or just put pressure on the wound. So we would get some really fresh gunshot wounds in Detroit. And then from there, you just do your best to try to save them. So, you know, it was that sort of mentality that I was trying to, um, you know, bring because um, if you get somebody in sooner, it gives us the opportunity in a hospital, well-lit, full equipment, um, multiple staff members, a trauma surgeon and a, uh, and a operating room, you know, uh, just a short distance away. I mean, tools that we have that aren't available to you guys out in the field. You know, if I could shorten that time uh, that they'd be willing to bring it in because as an ER doc, I'm not like, hey, you know, this guy's shot, but what's his AccuCheck? And what was his blood pressure? And what was O2 set? Well, what was his O2 set before that? You know, if I wasn't doing that to these medics, then maybe I could change their perspective and they weren't so um scared about bringing patients in in that manner because they knew that I wasn't going to do that to them and over the years that started to change I could see it and uh many medics you know told me that later and became good friends of mine we would talk about certain things and, um it became a relation much more positive relationship um uh, I think in, in the time that I was there um so uh, that, that that was kind of the sort of philosophy uh, philosophy that I had taken, um, you know, as far as my approach to EMS. So um, let's let's go into um, that that night in October um, when kind of all that experience in Detroit um, and everything is coming uh, or will come uh, full circle. Um, when did how were you first alerted? Um, that that this this event, the Las Vegas shooting, was happening um, while you were um, at work. So um, we, I was out. It was not that busy of a night, 
Um, but uh, we were out in triage just sort of joking around and um, they had called me overhead um, on the speaker system and they uh, typically the way that it works there is we didn't carry pagers, we didn't carry phones. If they needed a dock somewhere, it would be like ER dock to bed 40. You know, that that's what you would say. Not stat, not, uh, you know, crashing patient. You would just say, you know, you would call for an ER dock overhead. But that night while I was uh, there in triage, I heard menace to telly now or stat. I couldn't remember exactly what it was. So first off, why are you calling me uh, overhead? by name and why did I need to go somewhere stat? So, you know, typically if anything happened, I'd like to run to, to the problem, not walk. So I ran over to the uh, telly and that's when I, uh, I first heard, you know, the uh, transmission that, uh, uh, you know, something was gonna happen. And I was there, there just happened to be a police officer who was uh, there for another incident. And I remember looking at him as he was like sort of looking towards his left shoulder where his lapel um, um, uh, or his, uh, you know, the uh, lapel uh, mic for his walkie-talkie would be. And he was listening and I knew he was taking in a transmission just by the way that he was uh, looking at it. And once the transmission looked like it was over, I looked over at him and I said, hey, is this real? And he looked at me and goes, yeah, man. And um, at that point, uh, I knew um, this was this was it. And um, you know, for years, I had thought about this stuff. Um, didn't really say anything to anybody, just because I think if you start talking about any subject regarding mass casualties, um, you get labeled as a weirdo or uh, you know a crazy prepper. Um, when it's not really crazy when you look at history and you look at what's around you. Yeah, and, not, not crazy at all. I mean, it, it happens more often than we think. Yeah, it happens more often than you think. Most people go to work every day and tell themselves, hey, you know, it's never going to happen. Uh, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime uh, experience. You know, most people don't have to do it, so I'm not going to have to do it. You know, it's kind of the, uh, close your eyes, hope it doesn't come your direction uh, sort of thing. And um, so, you know, it had always it, it had always been in the back of my mind uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but sort of to backtrack and think about like the mindset of why I would do what we did was as a not so smart med student turned, um, um, you know, uh, first year resident. I realized how bad I was at, you know, ACLS um, and just codes in general. I mean, it's one thing to be a med student and do chest impressions. It's another thing to all of a sudden graduate from that as a fourth year med student, be a first year ER resident. And now they're looking at you and they, doc, what do you want to give? And you're like, uh, and, you know, starting to realize I wasn't as fast on the draw as I should be. And rightfully so. I mean, I didn't have much experience. I'm still learning the, the ropes and everything. So um, I had this approach of how I tried to um, uh, get better at, at these sort of things. And so what I, I started to do was, you know, after I had failed uh, my first round at ACLS, 
um, and then remediating it and passing it the next time, you know, I realized I wasn't that good because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't committed all of those sort of steps to memory, right? I mean, it was not as easy as they make it seem when you look at the algorithm. It's one thing when you have the algorithm in front of you and you can, you can do it. And it's another thing to make a step from seeing an algorithm to actually identifying it as it happens in front of your face. And I'm sure you've seen that before. I mean, somebody can tell you, oh, this is what you need to do when this happens. This is what you need to do. But it's a totally different thing when you're standing there. You're the one responsible and it's sort of happening in front of your face. It's weird how the human body doesn't necessarily identify that immediately. And I noticed that that was a shortfall with me. So, you know, I worked on it. I worked on trying to now, identify. Did this, did this just come over time with um, just either your, you know, you seeing patients dealing with with medics? Did did like an event like did was there something, or just this ongoing process that you identified that this is not a strong suit of mine? It was, I think it's that mentality where, um, I am my harshest critic. And whether or not somebody would tell me I did a good job on something, I would always go back, like at the end of, you know, Detroit's one of those places where it was, I mean, people would talk about, you know, emergency medicine, certain places, oh, it's crazy here, you know, our hospital's crazy. And, you know, before that, as a, as a med student, I had rotated through um, Martin Luther King in Compton. I had rotated a couple of times over at um, uh, LA County, USC in Los Angeles. Cause those were all somewhat local to where I went to med school at. And so those were kind of my ideas of what, um, you know, emergency medicine was And you know, LA County, USC is one of those like super busy places. I'm like, man, I'd love to be here and do my residency here. But, you know, I didn't end up going there, but that was kind of the bar that I had mentally set on what, uh, uh, what I needed to learn to be like and then i ended up in detroit and it was you know well past that as far as like um the number of sick patients that we would get you know i mean at the time detroit was the murder city of uh, murder capital of the united states of america i think we were only beat by flint and and if the only reason why Flint beat us was per capita they had more gunshot wounds because Flint's such a small city, right? Yeah, yeah, per yeah, per capita. I mean, I think Flint um I mean less uh, Detroit has like 700 800,000 people and um Flint is uh just over 100, maybe 120,000. So, I mean, the sheer volume of Detroit um compared to Flint is is no comparison. Uh but yeah, per capita it probably would, you know, Flint probably Flint takes that, but, but sheer probably number and volume and, and, and traffic scene. I mean, Hurley hospital in, in the Flint area is certainly busy. Um, but again, I, I think just the number compared to Detroit is, is it's so much more of a different animal than experienced up there too. It is. I mean, it really was a different animal. And when I had first come to Detroit, there were, I th- there were a number of hospitals on the East side of Detroit where we were at. Eastside is one of the most dangerous uh, places in Detroit. But that first year that I was there, I think they ended up closing like Holy Cross um, and then like St. John, uh, uh, 
Riverview, I think it was the name of the hospital. There was a couple yeah. of hospitals that closed down all at the same time or got bought out. And so basically our hospital went from like a hundred, like 75,000 uh, visits a year to like 130,000 plus. Now, Kevin, what time, and, what time frame are, are we talking here? Uh, what year? This was 2000, 2005 was when I started there. Okay. Okay. Oh so, yeah. I, I, you have to go back and look at the dates, but I remember that that was the time period that all of these hospitals were closing on the East side. And so all, you know, uh, every hospital in Detroit is, um, level one, or I'm sorry, all of the trauma centers are considered a level one trauma, right? I mean, you, the American college of surgery has specific guidelines on who's level one and who's level two. And it really depends on a number of different things. St. John at the time where I was at was a level two trauma center. Uh, there were, um, I think the only level ones were receiving and, um, Henry Ford. Um, I think, uh, um, um, Beaumont might've been a level one, but at the time we were a level two, but the way that Detroit EMS considered us, anybody who was level two and above was a level one trauma center. And you basically got what we sent you. So, um, yeah, we would get you know, a lot of penetrating trauma, we would get a lot of blunt trauma from the, um, from the uh, freeway. So, um, it was, it was just a, uh, a trial by fire every single day. You know, we would get resuscitation after resuscitation and I would go home and think about what I did each day and think about where was I slow? What could I have done better? Um, you know, and just be brutally honest with myself. You know, I didn't like my time here. And it's not like um, I had a stopwatch or I had a, um, a a camera to see what I was doing. I mentally just would think about what I did and be honest with myself and said, yeah, I can improve here and I can improve here and I can shorten my intubation time here. And all of those different things over the years, I would um, try to figure out tricks to um uh, to shorten those those uh, time periods and just become more efficient and also get better at all the different, um, you know, resuscitation um, algorithms and sort of commit them to memory in a way that I can see them immediately um, uh, as they would happen. Uh, and one of the other things that I had, I had done too was I started meeting EMS out in the ambulance bay um, uh, when I was in Detroit. It gave me that, you know, sometimes getting out of the rig and getting to the resuscitation bay can take, you know, it feels like forever, but, you know, it's because you guys are just trying to package a patient well enough to get them untangled and into the, um, into the uh, ER itself, right? Yeah, you have, so, you have O2, you have your IV bag hanging, you have you know your 12 yeah. your your four lead, your 12 lead wires everywhere and God knows what kind of, you know, blood you have coming out, you know. Of- yeah, you have an epi uh, syringe that's like acting as a tire block underneath, you know, your gurney. I mean, there's things all over the place. I learned that there was a lot you guys dealt with in the back of the rig and you know, just throwing out a couple of pieces of uh, you know, gear that were in the way 
unlocking the, um, you know, the uh, gurney myself from the back of the rig, I would always pop the doors open and, you know, open it up and, you know, uh, start unlocking the gurney so that we can start moving the patient out. Things like that would help give me a little bit of time. And I would take history from the medics at that point in time. And that gave me 30 seconds to a minute of sort of thinking about the case, setting up my um, sort of pathway I was going to go down, um, thinking about all the contingencies. Um, and before I even got to the resuscitation bay. So it would seem like I was faster than everybody else, but it wasn't. I mean, I was cheating, right? <laughs> I was just, um, I was going out there prepping myself so that I could be the fastest, most efficient doc for my patient um, that I was about to have. And so it was just sort of a uh, habit that I, uh, or a, um, a skill that was born out of sheer need because I knew I was not as good as everybody else. And so I needed to be better. And so it, it was something I carried with me when I would, uh, when I got to Vegas. And so, um, yeah, I met every ambulance out. In, if it, there was a call for a sick patient or resuscitation, I was always in the ambulance bay waiting for the medics to come in. And so, um, over the years, a lot of the medics would always say, Hey, menace, you're the only one who comes out here and sees us. And I would say, ah, you know, and I would tell them why, but I think it really started to change the relationship between me and EMS um, at the hospital. And over the years, what ended up happening was um, a, a lot of those same medics would start bringing these pa patients in, um, you know, real quick uh, because I would tell them stories of what happened in Detroit. And soon we would start getting real fresh gunshot wounds, real fresh um, uh, unstable resuscitations. So instead of getting, you know, 15 minutes of um, partial EMS, I'm sorry, partial ACLS because you only had one paramedic and uh, a couple of basics uh, on scene. You know, these paramedics look would start seeing these patients, realize that they were sick. And even before they were coding or soon after they would code, they would try to run the code in the ambulance and get it to us uh, fresh. So then we would have all these extra hands uh, on the scene and, uh, or I'm sorry, in the ER, and we would be able to get these uh, codes back. And one of the ways that I had always tried to, um, um, you know, reward the medics was if they came in and a procedure needed to be done, I mean, I'd let them intubate. I would let them do the, you know, some IVs and stuff. So they got a chance to see what it was like to resuscitate with the equipment we had instead of having to do it low light, you know, under duress, you know, and I think it really ended up changing this idea of, you know, stay and play versus scoop and run. And one of the medics who had started off as um, uh, working for one of the, you know, small transport ambulance companies uh, in town eventually ended up working for um, county fire or city fire and was actually on scene at, and he was uh, one of the, he was the first medic in the area where all the uh, victims had uh, self-extricated to. And he basically 
took all of those gunshot victims and loaded them into these vehicles, you know, 20 plus gunshot victims into pickup trucks and sent them our way. And I told him this and I know he doesn't, uh, he doesn't ever, he doesn't want me to ever say his name. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, Steve was, I think instrumental in saving so many lives that night because he knew with the few, um, uh, firefighter medics who were there, I think there were four or five of them, uh, in this one, not even a casualty collection, uh, um, uh, zone. It was just a area where everybody had self-extricated to get away from the gunfire. Um, because he had loaded and sent all of them to us uh, so quickly, I think all of those people were those who were who came to us alive. We were able to save solely because they didn't stick around and try to, you know, g uh, put Curlex on a gunshot wound or try to get an IV and a set of vital signs when these people really needed blood and they needed a uh, surgeon scalpel. So um, that was. I think it was certain things that when I look back later, um, I don't want to say that I was instrumental in doing it, but I know that there were people who I had a chance to interact with over the years who did some pretty amazing things uh, that night. And I'm just glad to have gotten to know them. So when you're in the ER and um, the, the, the police officer confirms like, you know, it's real, um, you know, what, uh, what happens next after that point? Um, you, you, um, you guys have televisions in the ER, um, are those getting fired up or you turn tune to CNN or, or whatever? Is it, um, you know, how much time also, how much time did you have from, from when best that you can remember from when you kind of have that conversation with the officer to when the ER doors open and, and you have your first, first patient. So um, I figured this out later looking at, um, looking at the timeline that I guess the hospital had put together, looking at security video. And shots were fired at, uh, I think it was 10.04, I believe. And our first patients came in at um, uh, 20 minutes after that. So um, there was no time at all between uh, when it initially started and when our first uh, patients came in. So um, yeah, there, there was very little time to, to set up um, uh, that night. So um, yeah, it wasn't much time at all. Um, I mean, but, really, I mean, from the time that, that, that is kind of, kind of recorded right now, I mean, the shots were only, I guess, 10 minutes worth of, of, of total duration of, of gunfire, which is huge and, and claims so many lives. But in from, from the time it stopped only five minutes later, I mean, and there's still ensuing chaos really five minutes or so after that, you're getting your first patient, which is insane. Yeah. There, you know, 10, 10 04 was the first shots. We get our first patients 10 24. Uh, it was 20 minutes after the first shots came out. So, you know, these patients, uh, you know, another thing that I think was pivotal uh, that night was um, uh, the victims who were there who had just um, 
who had just seen their loved ones drop right next to them. Um, and, uh, and they weren't shot themselves or even some of them who were shot. They grabbed those who were around them. And instead of just thinking about themselves, they grabbed people off the X, moved them to a safe area so that they could be transported by EMS uh, or just civilians to the hospital. And um, if it wasn't for them, I think we would have had even more lives lost that night because, uh, I mean, some of these people were wounded so badly they could not move on their own. And so, um, you know, there, there are stories out there of the heroics that they did. I mean, they basically would take um, barricades, turned them into makeshift gurneys, and they would carry these victims while under gunfire, you know, to uh, the makeshift casualty collection point. Yeah, you would see. Yeah, you'd see the barricade. You see the wheel. I think the wheelbarrows, uh, barrels of people, um, scooping people up and just getting them, um, getting them out of harm's way. It was really, really pretty, pretty incredible to see the the everyday heroics of that event, even given the you know the the chaos in that 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 was around that night. It's absolutely incredible what uh, what what they did. Yeah, and you know the uh, that sort of scoop and run mentality was something I had seen in Detroit and what it it's different than, you know, the idea of staying and playing, getting the vital signs, the IVs and everything, you know, partly because that's what your protocol, the EMS protocol says, partly because you don't want to deal with the doc who's going to give you grief, you know, and the staff at the hospital is going to give you grief over not getting the AccuCheck on the gunshot wound to the chest, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, you, you run these protocols in a certain way, not necessarily for the betterment of the, of the patient. But, you know, one thing that I learned seeing both, uh, you know, both ways was that if you got a scoop and run patient, there was a lot to do uh, because a lot of them didn't have IVs. But their chance at living was higher because they hadn't bled out that much, right? You know, um, uh, and so um, over the years, we I learned to work harder and faster in those first few moments to try to get these patients back. And so one of the things that you're going to, you know, you look at that I, I brought up in the, the conference when uh, that you'd seen when I was there in Detroit was, or in Troy, was that... Um, there's a difference between scoop and run and stay and play. And from an ER perspective, uh, one of the big things that we have to deal with now is a huge bolus of undifferentiated patients, right? And, um, you know, you take an idea like salt and start triage, right? The basis for how all uh, mass casualties are, you know, um, or from EMS perspective, how uh, mass casualties are dealt with. And both of those triage um, uh, ideas are, you know, I think are broken, right? And uh, you look at both of them and, you know, the initial sorting is, you, um, one of the first initial sorting things is, is somebody breathing or not breathing, right? And if they're not breathing, you're considered dead. Um, and you and I know that that's a hundred percent not true, right? They, uh, these tri uh, uh, triage systems don't even check for a pulse. 
um, you get a lot of apneic um, thready pulse patients uh, who are perimortem, uh, but they come into the ER all the time and uh, you know we save them under a regular basis. But the idea is with salt and start is, you know, we don't want to overwhelm the hospital. So let's just not bring all of these, for sure not the black tags and these sort of gray tags, these ones that are perimortem. Let's not bring them to the hospital because we can't save them. And, you know, the funny thing was um, that was disproven by, you know, the Aurora, Colorado uh, shooting where uh, police um, ended up scooping and running every single patient that they had to the ER, not checking a single vital sign, not really saying, well, you know, they're not breathing. Let's just bring them to the ER. And that was sort of the first um, time that, uh, you know, salt and start was, you know, proven wrong. That, um, that incident completely broke any sort of teaching that had ever been 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 really to me about mass casual tri uh, triage. John Spera from at that time Aurora Colorado Fire shares the story that he was on the first arriving engine to that scene, and and they kind of were stocked similar to I think a lot of rigs, especially in a suburban area, which was you know maybe a couple tourniquets. Um, and really, you know, some, some, some blood stoppage material, some hemorrhaging kits, but that was really, really, it. certainly not something, you know, in preparation for something like this. And one of the things he shared was this, this notion, this mindset of, of, well, you're going to get there and you can just start to yell and, and say, if you can walk, you go over here. And if you can go here, you can go over there. And then you can methodically go through these people that are on the ground and you can, you can chart them and tag them and they, they can go where you think they should go. And you just, you know, make them the EMS calls and use call for more. And he said it was, it was so they couldn't even get to the theater because people were so panicked that he recalls um, them opening the, the engine, the ALS engine, opening the door of the engine covered in blood. And they, they just kept shouting, they needed help. Well, these people, some of them, they weren't shot. They were just covered in someone else's blood, but it appeared as though they were they were shot. So it was, you know, when you start to take these patients as they're coming to you and like in these waves, kind of like Normandy, um, there wasn't time to 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 uh, put. I guess this, you know, red tag, black tag, yellow tag, green tag on people, and and, and to get there and and he recalls the same thing that you just said like they were just loading and going they were scooping and going they were just getting these people to the hospital because at the end of the day that's what they're going to need they're going to need blood and like you said a scalp uh, a surgeon's scalpel yeah these th that was sort of the pivotal moment that really changed i mean it's a i think it should change how every department fire department ems department looks at dealing with mass casualties. I don't think it's a uh, lesson that's taught uh, necessarily, or, um, but it, it really is one of the big takeaways from that. Uh, and I mean, it's been proven, you know, countless times after, I mean, you, you take um, um, Orlando, uh, for example, uh, you know, the, uh, there were two medics uh, who were working that night 
who basically scooped and ran and they broke all protocols and loaded um, multiple victims into a single ambulance, you know, in a hot zone to get them, you know, two or three blocks down to um, uh, Orlando Regional Medical Center, try to get these uh, patients uh, uh, to live. And, and, you know, I, I remember sitting down and talking to these guys after a conference and their story is incredible, just incredible to hear um, what they did in those, uh, in those two blocks, you know, trying to stabilize multiple patients to get them to, uh, to the hospital. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. I mean, those guys saved so many people that night uh, on their own. And again, th these were, you know, there's a, there's that saying by Santiana, um, you know, those who don't uh, learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, it was a, that is a, um, a saying that I've sort of uh, taken into my practice. And it, it's the reason why anytime I would see any of these active shooter things, um, it, it, it was, I would always try to learn from them, you know, from whatever open source material there was. And so, you know, again, you know, it sounds crazy when you talk about this stuff, but, um, you know, I, I prepped for this stuff for years, just listening to um, uh, any op or reading any open source material, talking uh, or, and then also, you know, working with the SWAT team. Um, I had uh, some guys on my uh, team who were um, exceptional. Um, it, and they were exceptional human beings, um, exceptional operators. And, uh, um, one of them, uh, who really, uh, changed my perspective on, uh, on what we could potentially get in Las Vegas was a man uh, by the name of, uh, Chuck Collingwood. And, uh, Chuck was a one of the uh first guys in delta force um he had a you know he was a uh, vietnam vet um ended up uh, uh trying out and uh getting accepted into the unit um was the one of the uh key guys who developed their um high altitude high opening uh parachute program. I mean, the guy was a avid um, uh, free faller, um, helped develop that, uh, that program for them and was just a straight up legend, um, you know, in that community. Um, and he was uh, one of, after 20 years of working, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, military, I mean, you can retire, but this guy went on to join uh, Las Vegas Metro Police Department and then became a SWAT operator and, you know, had a, you know, decade, 20 uh, plus year uh, career um, in, in uh, Metro. Um, and I was lucky enough to work alongside this guy, take, you know, um, learn to shoot from him and just talk to him in, in general about certain things. And I remember one day um, we were, just sort of, I mean, um, and you know this, you'll, you'll, you'll hang around other people and you'll talk about subjects that aren't really for public consumption. And um, we were talking about 
different threats within, um, you know, the Las Vegas area. And so the stuff that we would have to respond to if something ever happened. And so I remember talking to them about it and uh, Chuck had told me, uh, Hey, you know, we should go shooting one day and we're going to go up to the top of the, so they have a range that has two um, like uh, um, large, like semi mountains uh, that, that sort of uh, uh, border on both edge. I, I wouldn't say mountains, they're large Hills, but they have cliffs on them and, they would regularly go up on there and shoot down at targets. Um, and then they would also shoot across the the little valley. And um, he told me one day, he's like, yeah, Menace, we should go and do this. I was like, okay, cool. We'll hike up there and we'll go and shoot. And then I, I, I remember asking him, how hard would it be if this happened? Because this is basically what could happen on the strip. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, this is what could happen on the strip. And he kind of gave me this scary didactic on elevated shooting right off the top of his head and how, how deadly it could be and what could happen. And I'm not an operator, you know, I don't ever claim to be, but I listened to what he said and the doctor inside of me said, Oh shit. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that is a lot of people. And, you know, every um, New Year's Eve, I'd be with the boys uh, out on the strip and we would be, um, uh, you know, not to go into details of, of, you know, the security posture there, but I was there with the boys every single New Year's Eve. And um, I know how many people are on the strip and what that sort of entails. And, um, it scared me. And so from a doc's perspective, I thought, well, how could I be ready for the worst case scenario? So remember I told you about how I was not the best ER doc um, and I needed to get better. One of the things that I just sort of the philosophy that I had had for handling these resuscitations or approaching them was I'd always like pre-plan ahead, really try to think about what I could do uh, if something arose. And when you start to do that, what you'll find is along the way, you'll ask yourself questions of what can you do or what could happen. And a lot of those things, if you're being honest with yourself, you'll realize you actually have no good answer for um, a lot of those questions. And so I would just start looking for solutions uh, to those same questions I would ask myself. And sometimes you wouldn't have a, an answer, you know, immediately, but I would never give up on them. They would just be in the back of my head. And then I would, uh, when I would come up with an idea or a plan, I would sort of rehearse those ideas in my head and rehearse the algorithm in my head and say, okay, if I got to this point, what would I do here? This is sort of the uh, fork in the road. I can go this way. I can go that way. And so by the time the shooting had happened, I had a algorithm in my head for what I could do. And it really boiled down to that one day where I hung out with Chuck and um, I realized uh, what, what could potentially happen, not knowing that a couple of years later, um, you know, essentially that's what I found myself in the middle of. So when that first patient rolled through and you're probably tapping, tapping into this algorithm, what, um, when did your hospital start getting overwhelmed? 
I mean, we were immediately overwhelmed. Um, you know, being that guy who had hung out in the ambulance bay waiting for the sirens to come in uh, or the, the medics to come in uh, for years, you kind of learn what it's like to sit in an ambulance bay and hear the sirens work their way towards you, right? I mean, you hear it getting louder and lighter, louder. Sometimes you can kind of hear a pause where the volume seems to be the same. And usually you're like, okay, they're at the intersection of this and this. They're just clearing the intersection before they, they cross it. So you can, you know, and can expect uh, uh, when they're about to get there. And, you know, your heart just starts to, to pump and you, um, you know, you go into that mode where, okay, you suppress your fears, you get ready to work. And then you're, once the door's open, you go. And so I kind of, I know that sound, you know, I can still hear it, you know, that single siren, but that night was so different um, because the first vehicles that had gotten loaded were um, uh, police officers uh, vehicles. And you know, those, uh, those new Ford Explorers that they have the little miniature ones. Yeah. Um, so those were uh, what they ended up loading up. And I remember the, so the first four or five vehicles that had come in were um, uh, police vehicles loaded with patients. And, um, you know, officers uh, roll code a lot more often in a much more nimble car than you guys uh, typically do, right? I mean, your yeah. box car yeah, don't certainly. take corners like those, um, like those Ford Explorers do, right? I mean, I, I remember officer telling me that you could take a corner, like a, uh, a right-hand corner at, I can't remember the exact speed, but it's basically unsafe in most cars, but right. very safe in a, uh, in one of those police, uh, uh, Ford Explorers, but, um, they had two in the front seat and I remember it distinctly cause it pulled up, but there were all those cop cars were one right after another in this parade and you can hear the sirens working their way towards you, but they weren't clearing intersections. You know, they were just coming in fast and it didn't sound like that single siren coming towards you. It sounded like this choir. And I remember we had set up after, um, after getting that uh, confirmation from the uh, police officer, I'm sitting there in triage waiting for everybody to come. We had our gurneys all set up. You know, everybody was sort of waiting and ready to go in that short 20 minute span. And, you know, they came in just hot, you know, rounding the corner, popping the doors open. And there were two in the front seat. I remember one on the floorboards and three stacked on the back seat. And, you know, five gun or was that? Uh, yeah, six gunshot wounds um, brought into an ER. I don't care where you work. That's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. Absolutely. I, I mean, so when you ask me when were we overwhelmed, that was the second that door opened, we were overwhelmed. And to see the other, uh, you know, four police vehicles right behind them, you know, we were we were screwed, right? I mean, that was, we were underwater. Now, were point. you the closest hospital to the incident? Um, 
we're not the closest hospital, but we're the closest trauma center. Okay. And um, depending on what side of the uh, strip you were on, that's what uh, Metro knows um, where to uh, take uh, victims to. So EMS has a certain protocol. Everything from the strip goes to the level one. That That's kind of how the catchment is. Even though the strip is technically closest to us, catchment was always that um, the level one receives um, uh, everything. But uh, all other uh, things, I mean, Metro doesn't follow, or the police uh, officers don't necessarily follow the EMS protocols because they don't know them. They don't have to know them. Yeah, certainly. But we know that we were the closest hospital or trauma center, and so they they basically ran a parade of uh, of cars that uh, that they rolled in to to us. But on scene, you know, as those first police, so those had the sickest patients in them. You know, and unfortunately, you know, opening up that door on that first vehicle, I remember looking at some of them and I said, these patients are dead. You know, they didn't survive the initial transport, you know, uh, and so, you know, I knew that looking at them, but, you know, it wasn't time to, um, you know, sort of uh, think about it. But I remember looking at them and in the back of my mind, one of the uh, things that I had ran through in my head was I'm going to be working super fast to triage these patients. If I am wrong about one of them and they weren't, they did have a pulse. I just didn't feel it. If I sent them to the morgue right from the beginning, then that person didn't have a chance and I lost them. And so, yeah, I sent everybody back that way. If um, I happen to be wrong, which happens majority of the time, but if, if I happen to be wrong, then, um, and another doc had seen the patient and thought they were dead also, then you had two docs thought the same thing. And I could sleep every night knowing that I didn't send somebody to, to their death when we had an opportunity to save them. And so, you know, to sort of close that sort of uh, loop in my mind, to find out, I kept a mental track of how many patients I thought were DOAs when they came in. When our final numbers came out and they um, they gave us those numbers and those numbers match, um, you know, I don't regret what I did. Even though I know I was overwhelming our team back there, um, I know that at least, um, you know, we didn't lose somebody that we could have potentially saved. Now, what but, was your what was your staff like? How many other doctors or, or nurses did you have um, that night? There were three ER docs, one trauma surgeon, one anesthesiologist, one trauma resident. Um, there was a ICU doctor, a trauma anesthesiologist, and a peds ER doctor, and a peds icu attending those are the only physicians in the hospital at that time at night this is you know 10 o'clock at night on a sunday so everybody's home so yeah there weren't there there really wasn't that many physicians so like like i said i mean we were immediately overwhelmed once that first door opened and um 
you know, to see that there were how many more cop cars behind them. And then on top of that, because um, they had loaded up those uh, initial uh, police vehicles on that one intersection, they, um, they also loaded all of these, um, um, all of these like vehicles that they had commandeered at the intersection and loaded them and sent them to us too. So, um, yeah, it ended up, and those guys um, basically followed the cops. So we had a parade of vehicles that uh, started from the scene and ended up to us, uh, ended up at our uh, hospital. So we, um, it, it didn't just stop. I mean, we, it was vehicle after vehicle after vehicle. And, you know, initially there was like taxis and you'd have some like Ubers, you'd see the little Uber uh, neon lights in the front. And then when the pickup trucks started coming, I was like, this is crazy, uh, but let's just keep triaging. And I would, uh, you know, hop onto the back, try to find the sickest patient, send those ones back to, to my partners. And then the limousines started coming too. And so um, it was just one after another, after another. And it was, you know, I think. I mean, how many people were loaded up in, in limousines? Uh, I, you know, in, in the limousines, I don't know, 20. I mean, the pickup trucks had 20 in them, 15 to 20 limousines, about as many. And now were they, now the pickup trucks, were they putting them obviously in the cab, but in the bed of the truck too? Yeah. In the bed of the truck yeah, too. Just getting in there, man. You know, what was crazy about the, the pickup trucks was as I would jump on the back wheel, boost myself up to look into the pickup truck, you know, you you can eyeball a lot of these patients and see who's sick and who's not sick. But, you know, having to look at everybody would still slow you down. But again, those, um, those victims that night were so selfless that they would be doc, not me. It's this one. And they would, the second I would prop myself up onto the back of the bed and look in within two seconds, they honed me in on the sickest one. And then we would grab those ones and get those back. And so um, they helped me triage these patients so much faster, right? I mean, and that was what was key, um, you know, to being able to sort all of those patients because the basic premise of what we ended up doing that night was um, there are, you know, over the years of seeing uh, as many uh, episodes of penetrating trauma as I had seen, you know, you start to realize that there were those who died within that first, you know, few minutes. There were those, depending on the injury, would die later on, like in the golden hour, some that can make it past that initial golden hour, and then they would die. And then there were those who just, no matter what you did to them, uh, you know, you can, uh, they, they would never, they wouldn't die for days. And so that became sort of the triage system that we ended up using, you know, the red, orange, yellow, green, I, you know, everyone knows red, yellow, green, but I threw in that extra orange color and that allowed us to be able to work on those first um, red tags and hopefully get us successful on saving all of those. And the thought process was with the few that we had, the few docs that we had, if we stabilize those first reds, um, what we could do then is shift over 
after we had saved the first reds, I figured we probably would have resuscitated all of them and been able to shift over and work on all the oranges as they were starting to crash. And then soon after that, um, work on all the uh, yellows and, and uh, stabilize all those. That was the hypothesis um, of how we would handle this massive influx of patients. But triaging those into the right places uh, was, was key. And so these, um, these victims telling me who the red tags, red and grays, you know, I lumped those all together, um, uh, who, telling me who those were, it allowed me to just shave seconds off of, you know, wasting time out there in triage and then getting them back to our resuscitation base to get worked on right away. So, um, yeah, I ended up sending a lot of red tags back to uh, where I, de I designated uh, they would all be. And so, you know, one of the principles of mass casualties are these paper tags, right, that you're supposed to tear off and you write some stuff on it. And, um, and uh, th that's how you figure out who's what. And um, I knew in sort of mental rehearsal that that was never going to work, right? Um, you know, you can tear off, the tag can fall off the person's foot or wherever you're supposed to secure it. Um, you can do it wrong. I mean, it takes X number of seconds to fill them out. There was no way you were going to do vital signs and triage. That would slow the whole process down. And Just the simple fact of having to like write it down is... And, and trying to be like concise, but also your brain to some degree is going to default to maybe what that tag is asking for line by line. Um, so, I mean, just, I can just imagine the, the thought process of having a pen and just trying to formulate, you know, I have gloves on blood soaked. I have patients screaming in the ER. I have people coming in in droves and trying to fill out this piece of paper like I'm taking an order at, at, at a restaurant is just seemed like it would be um, you know just impractical in that setting yeah you know some of the tags are built to be even simpler you can punch them out or you can circle stuff with a uh, sharpie marker but again it's time wasted and if you break down the idea of what I'm you know what we're talking about which is a parade of vehicles um, that are all waiting to come to your ER, but you do what you're normally taught, which is to take a history, take a set of vital signs, and then you figure out what tag you should put on this patient and fill it out. I'm just going to say you're fast at this and say that that's 10 seconds. Okay. And that's including vital signs and everything else. But if you have a pickup truck of, we'll just start with the police vehicle, six patients that you do that for, that's one minute on that first vehicle. You know, then the, the next car behind it, next, uh, that's another minute because the, the cop cars were all loaded the same way. So one minute for each of the first uh, vehicles. Um, in my mind, before all of this happened, I always thought about what would it be like if I was a family member sitting in that last vehicle, watching them take their time with a blood pressure cuff, filling out a card, in triage, I would be like, well, you know what? I do CrossFit. I'm going to pick up this, uh, my loved one. I'm going to run him to the ER myself because you guys are taking forever. And soon after, if you think the last vehicle, vehicle number four starts running somebody forward, 
vehicle three will be like, well, I do CrossFit too. I'm going to take my, my, uh, my girlfriend and run to the ER. You know, you're soon in my mind, sitting in, in, um, in the uh, triage bay during uh, pre-planning, it looked to me like a zombie apocalypse, right? That's what it would look like if you lost complete control of triage. And then soon after that, you would get either stampeded um, or um, I think the most, the scariest thing was uh, loss of security. You know, uh, looking back at um, uh, the Mumbai shootings, um, there was a, uh, uh, you know, they attempted to attack the hospital, right? So it was in the back of my mind that um, uh, that was going to potentially happen. And um, I was expecting that one of these vehicles was actually an IED. And um, I was going to get blown up in the process. And, um, you know, the, the thought process of having to um, lose control of triage in this entire instance while you're trying to save lives was something that I knew would end up affecting everything downstream. So it had to be, um, it had to be quick. And so, you know, essentially what would happen was the cars would pull up, we'd pull all the patients out, I'd quickly triage them to, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, and nobody knew what that color was. And I wouldn't say green or I wouldn't say yellow. I had already mentally designated where those spots would be. And I would tell the staff, you know, station one, station two, station four, you know, rapid track. And those were the areas that the, the, the staff knew and they would bring them there. And those corresponded to all of those different colors. And that was kind of the direction that we were going to go uh, stabilize the patients in. And so that's how we were able to sort of triage all of those um, initial gunshot wounds into all those different places. I think the final number when the, um, actually, I don't know what the final number is. There's a lot of disagreement among that. But when the hospital looked at the, the footage and, uh, and tried to give us a estimate of what happened, I think in the first hour, there were, you know, 150 plus gunshot victims that had come in. Hundred holy cow, hundred and fifty people within an hour, and I think it was. And these are all gunshot victims, you know. And it was more. I think it was more than that, but um, you know that was their that was their estimate. Um, you know, looking at uh, you know looking at the footage, um, but you know I remember within those first few minutes because I was only out in triage for anywhere from 10, 10 to fifteen minutes in, in my estimation. I think I triaged at least a hundred something in that first 10 minutes um, before um, they ended up getting overwhelmed on the inside and one of the nurses ran out to triage uh, to grab me because at that point in time they had three ER doctors uh, stabilizing patients and so they needed me to get back there and so I figured you know so within had- 10 minutes you guys had 150 gunshot like victims come to the door yeah, when you, oh my God. So you, you know, four, if you take the four um, police cars with six victims in each one, yeah. that's 24, right? Mm-hmm. There were, from what I can remember, at least three pickup trucks 
all fully loaded from 15 to 20 people inside. Wow. You know, the limo that had about 20 in it. And I think there were two of them. That's what one of the uh, nurses who was with me out there said. There were two. I, you know, some things, some bits of it are a blur. Sure. And I'd seen a uh, video of some of the taxis that were coming in uh, that were taken off of the police. Um, you know, there, there's police uh, uh, lapel camera footage of the uh, taxis coming in and some of the POV vehicles. Those had, you know, four uh, victims in it. I mean, just doing the, the rough math, you know, I remember triaging all of those people. That That's how much time, you know, how many victims had, had come in in that short of time. And so, yeah, there was a lot of people really, you know, that, that overwhelmed us in a very, very short amount of time. How, so, How many patients total do you think you saw, like, there was gunshot victims there's probably those that were trampled or knocked over that were still kind of in need of medical attention um you know what what would you estimate that even you know you know you had 150 ish of gunshot wounds what do you think total you guys saw during the you know when i guess the last person came into the er connected to this event so officially um we received 215 Whoa. Uh, is the official number. Yeah. You talk to any of the staff uh, when, you know, we'd sit down and chit chat about it afterwards. Yeah. And we just go through the rooms and you're like, Hey, how many do you think were in, uh, in trauma one? How many were in trauma two? How many were in this hallway? How many were in this hallway? You add up those numbers and it's 250 plus, if not 300 plus. So, um, you know, I never saw the security footage to sit down and count all the different people. I don't know how precise they were when they looked, when the hospital looked back and looked at the footage. But when you ask people who were there, there were a whole lot of people who were shot. So when, um, how, how was the staff maintaining through this? I mean, did, I, I, I have to imagine the, the stress on everyone was, um, you know, tenfold you know how you know how was communication um was it uh were you guys able to maintain it um and just kind of i guess talk with authority but but also under you know under so much duress um you know kind of word that you used earlier um you know how 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 important too was was either your communication or everyone else's communication to either maintain a breakdown if it happened or or kind of just make sure you stay mission focused um, I mean, these, uh, the team that we, I worked with that night, you know, um, they were nothing short of amazing, just nothing short of amazing. Um, and I think it was this sort of idea born out of fire, you know, this sort of cauldron of fire of, um, a scenario that isn't ideal, but selects for, um, a particular type of, um, mentality you know the the standard nursing to patient ratio is four to one right that's what you're supposed to get in the er our nurses would carry and if you had an icu patient in most places and they were really sick and they had lots of drips going sometimes it was one-to-one -one. i mean that's what you get up in the icu one one-to-one -one or two-to-one in our er the nurses regularly carried 
four ICU patients um, by themselves. So most nurses, most of our veteran nurses who had been there um, uh, were there because they loved it, not because they thought it was a, the safest environment to work in. You know, you always hear about, you know, I put my license at risk, but I mean, the nursing staff that we had were, you know, amazing. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you would say, well, you know, you guys have must have had a bunch of veteran nurses uh, who were working uh, that night, and that's how you were successful. But um, I think at least a third, if not more, of our nurses were new grads who had more than or less than two years of experience, and many of them were under a year of experience. So, again, this was a. I, I think that because we had this environment where it was always busy, um, you know, the ratios were always heavy. Um, we carried patients in hallway beds and, um, you know, despite all of the um, difficulties that we had, you know, uh, the docs and the nurses had, you know, developed this relationship of, hey, we can handle it when we run a code in the hallway. You know, and we had done it years for, for years, you know, running codes in the hallway. Um, and uh, because we had uh, always did that, and we, we never closed our doors. That was one of the uh, philosophies of the hospital. Never would go on divert. I mean, it would it would take a, a true disaster for us to go on divert. Um, one of the true disasters that we had one time was a intubation that occurred. I won't say a specific doctor with an ugly mustache had uh, intubated somebody in the ambulance breezeway once uh, who was experiencing status epilepticus. And um, when there were no ventilators and RT was bagging the patient in the ambulance breezeway as the doors were trying to close on them, uh, I think that might have been one time that we had gone on divert uh, that I can remember. So um, this was that uh, you know, there was a, uh, uh, the staff that we had were, like I said, exceptional. And they tolerated a lot of nonsense that, um, you know, I think they, I don't think they, they tolerate, I think they enjoyed it. Um, you know, and I think you could see it in everybody's face because anytime we would have a resuscitation, they all have that same look on their face of, you know, success, we got somebody back. And I think everybody thri there thrived on that sort of adrenaline. And, um, you know, there was this teamwork that we had that was, uh, I think, what helped us survive that night. So, yeah, I mean, running resuscitations in the hallway and, and things like that were just some of the things that we had done that night. But we're done before all of this. Um, and so uh, I think the staff was acclimated to this idea of, working under really terrible conditions. So um, I think that really brought on sort of the success, um, uh, you know, the successful resuscitations that we ended up having to do without monitors, without, uh, you know, with basically a doc and a nurse is basically how most of these resuscitations occurred, just because we didn't have the staff to run it like you would at a trauma center with, you know, 10 people on a single GSW, you'd have a doc and a nurse. Um, and that was it. 
So, um, you know, I think that was when you ask how, you know, how we ended up um, handling it. I think the staff, uh, you know, handled it extremely well. With uh, anybody in, I guess, respect to registration or um, ER, like ER phone, like communication. Um, did you ever hear any um, either uh, accounts or or challenges of you know family members at this point, like contacting your hospital, trying to get information on if you know if if did did that ever play into uh, any sort of challenges that that your team had to overcome? Um, I can remember out in triage. You know, there were uh, as the patients would come in, there were times that. Um, even though these victims were, uh, you know, were brought in by POV, there are some family members who wanted to be with their loved one, but they would sort of pack themselves into the same vehicle and they would let their loved one sort of sit on their lap, you know, um, you know, uh, dying in their arms and they would bring them in. And so I remember separating family members from their loved ones and triage and uh, you know telling them you need to go this way and we're going to take your loved one through the doors and that was um you know it's something i feel um i feel bad about uh, to this day because um you know i never gave them a chance to say goodbye or any of those things like we normally would but from a security standpoint um any one of those people could have been an active shooter. Uh, and all the, I mean, if you shot me and uh, we kept going, you would probably lose one resuscitologist and the guy who was running triage. You could still function. But at the time when we had one trauma surgeon, if they walked in and shot the trauma surgeon, I mean, that was game over. Yeah, that'd be it. So um, it was you know, security was paramount in sort of the uh, preparation for what we would do. We had cops guarding the, you know, our entranceway. I mean, we had a heavy security posture because that police officer who was there, um, I told him, hey, I'm worried this is going to be Mumbai. We're going to need some more shooters. And he looked at me and he knew exactly what I was talking about. And, you know, the fact that I had been, uh, you know, around uh, these police officers and knew their lingo and I could basically in few words, tell him what I wanted and what I was thinking. Um, he knew exactly what I was thinking. And soon enough, we had, we had like this army of officers guarding our position. And, you know, it was porous enough to get everybody through quickly. But the second somebody would not separate from, if they didn't have a gunshot when they weren't going into the ER, that was basically how uh, it worked. So they helped us separate uh, these family members if, you know, it, it got difficult. But those family members ended up in our waiting room and they patiently waited. You know, um, we didn't have guys trying to break down the doors or doing anything crazy like that. They just sat there and they waited patiently for us to do our job. And so, yeah, was there family members who became an issue? Uh, no, it wasn't. It, it wasn't a, a big deal at all. And I think the other thing that sort of um, uh, happened uh, that night was the cellular service uh, ended up getting overwhelmed by just the sheer number of people trying to call. Yeah. That 
um, there was no way to get in contact with the hospital. And so, um, um, you know, our, our uh, secretaries were able to call out, get a hold of a lot of docs, but if they left a message and they tried to call back, a lot of them weren't able to get through. So, you know, you'd get a message like, hey, we need you here. There's a mass casualty. And that's basically what you would get as a doc. And you're heading towards the ER. You had no um, sort of preparation of what to expect before you got there. So, uh, I mean, that was also, I think, a thing that uh, uh, made it so that we didn't have a bunch of um, phone calls uh, interrupting uh, sort of the work. Uh, and sort of uh, family members uh, delaying anything. I, again, these were some of the most gracious patients and their families were um, on par uh, with uh, the, the patients. So um, that that actually was not a problem uh, one bit. With, um, we have a, you know, come from a first responder background. We have, you know, a lot of followers, listeners that, that kind of have that same, that the same background. Um, what uh when this all kind of um uh, i won't say dies down for lack of a better term but when everything calms uh the dust the dust settles um patients get released the uh the media hoopla um dies down um what in in respect to EMS what uh what takeaways you know did you have for this incident um either for EMS as it relates to your interaction with them or, or advice that you can give a medic crew um, faced in this situation, either equipment they could carry, um, techniques to put in place. Um, you know, what, 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 what do you have to say to that? I mean, there we can go into a super long discussion about um, mass casualties and EMS. I mean, we could do an entire podcast on that alone. Um, and, you know, I gave you some links uh, earlier about some of the articles that I had written about yeah. this. Yeah, and we'll make sure we get those out there. There's a there's an article that I had written called um, uh, about Scoop and Run. And I basically break down, uh, you know, the ideas between, you know, the pros and cons of Scoop and Run versus Stay and Play. And, um, I mean, that is a a subject that is above uh, your pay grade and above my uh, my uh, uh, my pay grade too, right? I mean, that's a discussion at the EMS director level and the the chief level, right? The fire chief level. I mean, um, again, most uh, uh, mass casualty protocols here in the United States are based off of salt and start, and again, those are broken systems, but um, they continue to be the way that uh, mass casualties are managed. Um, when we start to change that mentality, um, it isn't just the mentality that we have to change at the EMS level and say at the hospital level, hey, you know, it's all your guys' fault. You need to fix this. and You know, then we'll be good. I mean, you have to always look at yourself about how you can improve yourself also. And I think from a hospital standpoint, we as a hospital have to look at ways to manage this massive influx of patients. So the way to save, I mean, the goal 
has always been save everybody in a mass casualty, right? I just think that um, the way that it's gone about, uh, it has been uh, sort of taught is wrong. Um, and it wouldn't work um, um, in a real mass casualty. Uh, and to sort of prove that point, um, there were firefighters and paramedics in the crowd who were victims of, uh, you know, the shooting. And within that crowd, some of their loved ones or some of the people who were standing next to them in, um, in uh, the uh, concert were also injured. You also had medics who were, um, you know, military medics and people who had had any sort of medical training. And mass casualty is a subject that's taught a lot in EMS. And, you know, what, what's the, you know, one of the things that you're supposed to do where you're supposed to bring them to a casualty collection point, right? And then from there, EMS is supposed to uh, transport them. But when it's your loved one who just got shot, you bypass this casualty collection point and you bring them to the hospital yourself. So if it's good enough for your family member, it should be good enough for the public is sort of the mentality that I think as a, um, um, I think going forward is something that we need to really look at and think, is this, or, or is what we're doing right or wrong? So I think that's sort of the first question that needs to be asked and something that I try to, to bring about whenever I go in and, and teach the subject. And then from there, you can think about, um, you know, there's a whole lot to talk about when you're talking about these mass casualties. How close is your trauma center and how far is it away? Because if you have a, a, an event where um, you're, you have a lot of victims, but your, mass, your, your trauma center is you know, uh, a long distance away, you're talking about what the military is doing right now, right? Where you have these um, uh, uh, multiple injured and they're doing TCCC in order to stabilize these patients, prolong their, their life so that you can make the long transport to the hospital, right? And they do the whole thing with tourniquets, you know, whole blood. They have, in some instances, they have some docs at, you know, with the forward surgical teams. And, um, you know, they do a lot of things to bridge the distance between, you know, the scene and the actual trauma center, right? And they do it to a, uh, uh, in a very successful manner. And that's very different than the civilian world where, you know, a lot of these things happen, you know, five minutes from a trauma center. So, you know, the question of how we can prep in a, um, in this scenario, I think the second uh, uh, answer is you can have tourniquets and you can have lots of tourniquets and you can, you know, try to set up this, uh, you know, a similar TCCC type um, uh, setup to bridge you between the um, scene and the hospital, but from a, a financial standpoint, right? Because everything is really about money. Um, how much whole blood can you carry inside a rig, right? I mean, whole blood has a shorter shelf life than component blood. And that is really the um, financial um, limitation for why a lot of these, uh, why 
I think a lot of EMS may will never carry um, whole blood, you know, out in the field. I know it's being tried in certain areas in Texas, but I think um, um, you know that question will be answered as they, you know, as they continue to do their studies. But you know, um, with a short shelf life, it's going to be really hard to um, justify the cost. And unfortunately, that's how everything's run in medicine. So um, then you have, if that's not uh, what you're allowed to do, then you have to figure out other ways to, to uh, work around it. So I think as you get closer to a trauma center, the idea of scooping and running is more of the, um, um, I think the model that you have to, to work off of. And sort of to hammer that point away, I. Um, I talked with a couple of um, medics who had um, arrived on scene. Uh, one of the other, um, um, so when I work with, when I worked with the uh, SWAT team, we had partners um, uh, whenever we would go out and do anything. And that was the armed officer who was with search and rescue. And they were sort of our security, but they were also um, either um, they were all medics, uh, either paramedics or advanced, and they would um, they would help us in a um, if if one of the officers were down. And one of them told me that um, he had his you know quote unquote go bag filled with tourniquets, and he walked a few feet and he ran out of supplies. So I mean, carrying all of that weight and with that many victims, how much could you really carry? Um, going to a scene like this. And um, if you ended up uh, getting bypassed by, you know, bystander scoop and run, how feasible is it? I mean, those are all questions that you have to, to sort of answer as a uh, EMS, that uh, EMS has to uh, decide when, you know, you have any of these large venue events. So to answer your question, I think those are sort of the topics that need to be hashed out in order to make the best plan possible for the scenario that you may be dealing with. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. We, uh, in my area, our, our closest level one hospital driving, driving normal traffic is about 25 minutes away. Uh, we have a couple level twos, we have one level three. Um, but consequently we have, um, we did we have a couple of music venues we have a college campus within seven eight minutes of our of our border and i've kind of said it before on here but you know everyone is every fire department it doesn't matter um or or community you are one incident number away from being being on cnn and having anderson cooper narrate what's happening in, in your community it, it could be a high school graduation. It could be a birthday party. Um, and regardless of if you think this town is, is set up for it or if you think it can't happen here, I mean, th anyone in medicine, anyone in food service, anyone that has to deal with the public knows there are, cr there are mentally imbalanced, um, you know, a la, lack of a better term, crazy people everywhere in this community. And, and nobody knows what tipping point is going to make them sway one way or the other. And I, and I couldn't agree more with you that, that we are 
in an EMS agency, especially in my area, um, very behind um, behind the eight ball uh, of what could be done to to drive home at least the equipment carried on on, on a rig or the 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 pre incident planning that would be that would that would be there. Um, you know, especially, you know, we had, we had a music, uh, a big entertainment venue that, uh, just was, was tore down, but it would, it would hold 20,000 people and they'd have one ambulance on scene for 20,000 people. And I mean, as someone pulling the, so, you know, for, you know, someone pulling the fire alarm, you know, you, you, you are destined to have, you know, uh, at least two people get hurt, uh, in the, in the exit of, of that, um, thing. Um, Kevin, I, I can't thank you enough for the, for the time, um, that you spent talking with us and, uh, and, and honestly, the, the work that you, um, your team did, the police officers, the medics and, um, the civilians that, that were instrumental in, in saving lives that day, um, is, is, is certainly, a a story I think that, that, that should continue to be shared. And um, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story uh, with us today. Well, thanks Chris for having me. I appreciate your time. Um, so I wish you the, uh, I wish you the best of luck. I, I hope that you have a long and, and healthy, fruitful career in medicine. And, and I hope that you still contribute to, um, you know, your mission and, and continue to, to, to preach the, the, the word of a, a better, a better response model for, for MCIs. And, um, I look forward to hopefully talking with you in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, Kevin, you have yourself a good day, man. God bless. Yeah. I'm sorry. We took so long. I mean, there's some things that when you talk about it, I mean, I, no, oh, Kevin, this is, there, there's no apology. I had, I had a great time talking to you. Yeah. I just, there's certain things when you touch upon it, it's like errors. They're loaded, you know. Those the, questions. Well, are it's it's loaded, and it's there. I mean, every I mean, every single part of it is, you know, there. There's so much depth to every small little piece that that I mean, like you said, you know, you could you could have a you could have a two day eight hour conference each day and only scrub on one the incident, two MCIs, and you could have a fourth and fifth day for you know TCC and everything else. So it's a it's, it's a big it's a big um uh thing to unpack and i think what was hugely important that uh i i didn't know this side of that incident or incidents like it and so when when i heard you you know you the conference in 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 michigan when you when you spoke again was such a huge you know thing i i remember walking out of there i followed you on instagram and you know and I just, I, it kind of sat there and I saw your post. And then when we started doing this, I, it was, you were definitely someone I, I really wanted to reach out to because I knew you had a pretty uh, intense story and, um, but, but more importantly, a, a more positive message beyond that point. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that, uh, you know, I can inspire a couple of your medics to develop, maybe even if some docs listen, they can develop that relationship between EMS and, uh, you know, the ER because, it's not, you know, a lot of times it's just not where it should be, you know, unfortunately. So, yeah. Amen. And I, I I'll, I'm going to take a lot of the, what we talked about and, and, you know, work, uh, work to make those improvements, uh, in my own agency. And if I can't, if I can't get it in my own agency, I can at least get it within my own station and, and put yeah. it out there from there. Yeah.
Thanks, man, for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome, Kevin. Well, thank you so much, man. God bless, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Um, I want to thank Kevin uh, so much, um, not only for his time that he shared with us, but for the heroics that that he performed that night and, and the amazing message that he is trying to um, push forward in the medical community and the first responder community to uh, get faster at treating trauma, get more aggressive at treating trauma. Let's get these people to the hospital where we can get them, get them help, get them blood, and let's get those tourniquets on as fast as possible. Um, so uh, that episode just was so humbling. Um, kind of still taken back by it. Uh, if you haven't heard Kevin's story, you can check it out. Um, we're going to share some links to some of the articles that he's written uh, on the link to the podcast. So uh, I appreciate it, everyone. Uh, until next time, have a good one. Do something good for someone else. And uh, we'll see you. Bye.